Well, good morning to you again. Um, I just want to say one more word. Uh, you, you, clearly, it's Pentecost. We've been talking a lot about that. We've, we've been experiencing it. And, um, you know, there, there's two areas where you can think about the Holy Spirit working that, that kind of help us to understand better even the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One is in the world, of course, but as God takes his word to all the nations, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and, and gives them this message of his grace. Um, but you're also meant to see the work of the Holy Spirit in your own heart and in your own life. And what does that mean? Like, how do we begin to think about the work of the Holy Spirit in us? Well, Galatians chapter 5, verse, 20, uh, chapter 5, verse 22 says this, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then Paul says, you know, we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. The, the, the reality of the Holy Spirit is meant to be something we access and consider. Like, if you're longing to grow in love and joy and kindness and gentleness, and you're not there yet, that's not evidence the Holy Spirit's not working in you. If you're longing for the Holy Spirit to work, that's evidence the Holy Spirit is working in you. If you feel like God is distant or absent, and you don't want Him to be distant or absent, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in you. And one of the things that God gives to you in the midst of feeling the, the struggle of our spiritual lives is His Word. It's why we preach the Scriptures every week. It's why we read the Scriptures, because this is what the Holy Spirit uses the Word, saturated in who God is, applies it to our hearts, and builds us up, sanctifies us, grows us, enables us to keep in step with the Spirit. Paul prays in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, this is my prayer. This is Paul's prayer 2,000 years ago, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're doing this morning. That the prayer is being answered right here in our midst by the power of the Spirit for us to hear His Word and to take it in seriously and to, and to let it transform us. And so, in light of that, the reality of God wanting to work through His Word by the power of His Spirit let me read you our text for today. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of the resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we talk about the idea of righteousness, it's kind of a tough word for us to access because oftentimes when we think about what it means to be righteous, the idea of self-righteousness comes around. And actually, like in your friendships, if you're just meeting someone, it might not come off well to say, hi, my name's Brad and I am righteous. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel right. Um, Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, talks. he says this, if we feel more righteous as we read the Bible, we're misreading it. We are, we are missing its central message. We're reading and using the Bible rightly only when it humbles us and critiques us and encourages us with God's love and, and grace despite our flaws. 
You know, the idea of righteousness, let me, let me kind of help us to think about it this way. What does it mean to win? Like, what does it mean to win? There are little wins in life, like Wordle and two, you know, that's a win. Getting a green light when you're on the way somewhere, like you get a green, you're like, yes, that's a win. Coming, this is a win. Coming home and like your kids, there's like a, my, my wife's awesome at this. She'll leave a list for the boys of chores to do. And every now and then we'll come home and it's like, check, 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 check. And we're like, win. Like, yes, that's awesome, you know. And there are big wins, like graduation. Some of you are graduating from high school. That's a big win, or college, or something else, or an anniversary. You know, I've been talking to friends this week. I have a friend whose anniversary is today in our church, 40 years of marriage. We've got a 60-year marriage anniversary coming up. We've got a 65-year marriage anniversary coming up. Like, those are big wins. Those are beautiful, wonderful things we should celebrate. But what does it mean to win at life? Like, what would that mean? What do the scriptures have to say to us about that? Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, talks about the word of life. Is there a word that if we contemplate and we meditate on and we let shape us and we think to ourselves, how can I live into this? Is there a word of life that we can access that actually enables us to experience thriving and peace, the fruit of the Spirit, joy, kindness, and gentleness, and forbearance, love. Is there a word? Is there a word of life? Well, it's what Paul's talking about here in, in, in um, Philippians chapter 3. This, this righteousness that is ours by faith through Christ Jesus our Lord. Not a righteousness, not winning on our own credentials or our own merit, but winning by what Christ has done for us, the one who died for us, the one who rose again, the one who's perfectly righteous. And as we put our faith in him, we are fully forgiven and accepted and beloved of God. Are you believing in that word of life? Paul says here in verse 7, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. Do you really know Christ? There's a word of life to be found there. There's a righteousness that we have access to, and it transforms us. And so what we're going to do um, this morning is I want to talk about Three people that Paul talks about in Philippians, the end of chapter 2 and, verse, and chapter 3, where we see this word of life, this righteousness, this winning to begin to make itself evident. And so we're going to talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus and then Paul. Okay, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and Paul. Let's start with Timothy. So last week, you remember, um, we, we talked about Philippians 2 all the way to verse 18. Well, in verse 19, for those of you who are like, wait, is he skipping verses? I'm not, okay? I'm not skipping verses. Look at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself as a son, uh, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And so he wants to send him back. What do we learn about Timothy? Now, Paul doesn't say, well, you know Timothy, he was raised in the church, he's got all the right, like, pedigree, um, he's been really good, he's done everything I've asked. No, no, what does Paul say? He says, I want to send Timothy back to you because he has genuine concern for your welfare, because he really loves you. In a world where it seems like most people are just looking out for themselves, which is something we probably experience at times, Paul's saying, I want to send Timothy to you because he has a fruit of the Spirit, genuine concern for the welfare of the others or to, to kind of sum it up in a word Timothy loves you 
and I want to send him back to you. When we begin to bask in the righteousness that is ours in Christ, it makes us a people who begin to consider genuinely the interests of others. You know, what does Jesus say the greatest commandment is? commandment is it is to love god with all of our heart soul mind and strength and then to love one another i want to send timothy to you because of his genuine interest in your welfare you know that timothy's proved himself because as a son with his father he served with me in the work of the gospel timothy has walked alongside paul he's been a great source of encouragement to him and and, and paul's holding him up and saying look th- this is what happens to somebody who's been impacted by the reality of this word of life this righteousness that is in christ and then Paul talks about Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus' story is a little more difficult, a little more uh, um, story to it in some ways. Paul says in verse 25, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. What do we learn about Epaphroditus? Well, he was Paul's brother. He loved him like a brother. He was his co-worker. He worked him with him. He shared his same interests. He was his fellow soldier. He stood with him. Remember, Paul's in prison. To be buddies with Paul was to be buddies with someone who was against the powers that be. And Paul's like, he has been unwavering in his what? His genuine concern for my welfare, in his love for me. Epaphroditus is a messenger that the church of Philippi had sent to be with Paul. Why? Because of their genuine concern for the welfare of Paul. They're like, we're going to send you Epaphroditus. And then Epaphroditus gets there and gets a bug or gets something, and he gets so sick that he's on death's door, and everybody's upset about it. Paul's concerned. He can't help him. He's in prison. The church of Philippi is concerned. They can't help him. He's with Paul. Timothy's probably concerned like everybody's concerned but then god has mercy it's interesting sometimes in life we encounter things that are so difficult to process and so difficult to deal with we've kind of been living i just feel like there's so much trauma all around us in different ways when paul experienced the fear of losing his friend to this illness he prayed and he asked for god's um, intervention and god actually intervened it seems and shows mercy upon him God showed genuine interest for Paul, for Epaphroditus, for Timothy. He brings his grace to bear. And then we read this in verse 28. It's so human. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Paul was worried. But it's the kind of worry that's what? The genuine concern for the welfare of the other. Epaphroditus had risked his life He's gotten better, and Paul's like, look, I want you to go home. I want you to celebrate with the people who sent you that you're alive. You, do you ever, th- you, you read about one of the fruits of the Spirit, joy? Do you ever think about seeking after joy, seeking after beautiful things, seeking after celebrating one another? You know, this week, if, as you can tell, as, as Kyle's mentioned, VBS is happening. Why are we doing VBS? Is this so kids can have fun? Well, yeah, I mean, like, sure, we want kids to have fun. Is this so parents can have free child care? It's actually a nice little benefit for those who want to get shopping done or need a break or whatever. What's the reason? Well, you get a hint of it from the name, kind of the theme of our VBS, God's Wonder Lab. We want every kid who comes into this church this week, every parent who drops a kid off, every volunteer who put in hours, and I watched it, hours and hours and hours of painting 
rivets on the hallway on blue paper or constructing and creatively coming up with all of these displays to give this kind of fun experience for kids. We want every single person to do what? To encounter the wonder of this thing that Paul is talking about when we gain Christ Jesus. This righteousness that is ours by faith. We live in a world that very often is only interested in us based on what we cost or how much we benefit. Christ pays everything so that we might benefit all. It's a beautiful reality we're invited into, the wonder of God's love for us. So we hear about Timothy, we hear about Epaphroditus, we see the transforming work of the gospel in their lives as evidenced by their genuine interest in the welfare of others. It's really beautiful. And then Paul begins to talk about himself, but he takes a different approach. Paul starts with talking about the things that made him unrighteously righteous. He found righteousness, he found value, he found worth in unrighteous things, and he describes them. And you can read um, this, what he talks about in the beginning of three where he says he has confidence in the flesh. And what did he find confidence in? Well, look at verse 5. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. And what that meant for Paul was that his family was devout. They were faithful to Genesis 17. They were faithful to Leviticus 12. They were devout people. He was born into the right family. He had inherited privileges. Paul goes on to say he's from the people of Israel. He was, and literally, if you translate it, the right ethnos, the right race. Paul says, look, I was born in the right family. I was born in the right race. I was born in the tribe of Benjamin, he says. Why does that matter? Well, Benjamin was the only son born in the promised land. King Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul, before he became Paul, before his conversion, his name was Saul. Paul's saying, look, just from my pedigree, as far as like what I've inherited, these inherited privileges, I've kind of got it all. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Let me kind of translate that into like a, a modern day translation. I'm a Texan of Texans, right? He's got it all. He could speak Aramaic and Hebrew. He could read the original languages um, in the scriptures instead of having to read it in Greek or Latin. He was like, look, if you want to post up on me as far as being born of the right family and having the right reputation, trust me, I got you. And then he talks about his impeccable credentials. A Pharisee with zeal. That just meant he was a really faithful, really elite uh, religious teacher. He was a heavyweight intellectually. He probably went to like the University of Texas in Austin or something. Verse 6, listen to how arrogant he is, speaking of that last statement. Listen to how arrogant he is. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul perfectly obeyed all the rules. Now look, I'm a first child. I take a lot of like joy in not breaking the rules, at least not too bad. So like I'll speed a little bit, you know, in general. I get really nervous about going fast or doing things like you're supposed to. I just want to do everything to make sure I kind of stay in the lines so that I have less people who would be upset with me, right? It's all this first child stuff. Paul's saying, listen, if you want to compare my life to rules, I dare you. I'm faultless. Paul lays all this out, and he says, this is where I'm drawing my confidence from. This is my identity. What's your identity? What's the thing that you primarily identify as? First and foremost, when I was in high school, I know it's a little different now. Um, I'm 46, so I know it was a little while back. But when I was in high school... You know, I had a pair of boots, and I had Wrangler jeans, and that's what ropers wore. We had that category. I also had a pair of Vans, and I would go skateboarding, and those were skaters. I was also a gymnast, and I had, like, cool patches for different things, so I was in jock, right? And then I was in choir, 
I even got a scholarship to sing a little bit at Newell Junior College one year so I could sing. And I remember a friend asking me, because this was, you know, I know it's, it's some ways the same, some ways different today, but I had a friend who was like, look, which are you? Are you a jock? Are you a, like a, a skater? Or are you a roper? Like, what, what are you? I was like, I don't know. I just kind of, you know, flow. Yeah, I don't know. I remember in high school, I got the award most courteous. That's hard for some of you to believe. It's easy for some of you to believe, but like, it's nothing. It mean, no one cares about any of that. It's hard even as an illustration. You're like, where is this going? Like it, but it mattered so much when I was in high school. Paul's saying, look, if you build your life on your credentials, if you build your life on what you can accomplish, even if you're really good at it like me, that's called having confidence in the flesh. And then Paul goes on to describe what it means to have confidence in the flesh, how useful it is. Whatever were gains to me, plural, I now consider loss, singular, for the sake of Christ. All of those things that I had gained, they, are, they measure up to one thing, loss. They're not enough. They can't be enough. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Where are you finding your chief identity? If it's in the flesh, you may not believe it right now. Maybe you're killing it. Like you're just, you know, you're doing great. It's going to fail you. It's not going to be enough. It's not meant to be. You know, to, to put our ultimate hope and our ultimate identity in anything other than who Jesus is, it is precarious, but it is also sinful. See, the idea of sin, it's, it's this idea that anything that's out of accord with who God is doesn't lead to where it promises, and it actually always leads to destructiveness. It leads to desolation. Ultimately, it leads to death. Tim Keller, just I was reading his book this week, obviously, Reason for God. He quotes Soren Kierkegaard. I want to read this to you. He says, The famous Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a fascinating little book called The Sickness Unto Death in 1849. In it, he defined sin in a way that is rooted in the Bible, but also is accessible to contemporary people. Sin is, in despair, not wanting to be oneself before God. Did you get that? In despair, not wanting to be oneself before God. Faith is that the self in being itself, wanting to be itself, grounded transparently in God. Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from God. What does this mean? Well, everyone gets their identity, their sense of being distinct and valuable from somewhere or something. Kierkegaard asserts that human beings were made not only to believe in God in some general way, but to love Him supremely, to center their lives on Him above everything else and build their very identities on Him. Anything other than this is sin. What is sin? Well, the confession says sin is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. Why does that matter? Because it's like, you know, I've, I've told you this before, but it's like the idea that just because you smell something that smells good, it might be poisonous. Just because pine salt smells awesome doesn't mean you should drink it. There are things in this life that draw us. We're like, that feels right. That seems right. 
Like, that seems like the way that we're going to thrive and find everything we're meaning to find as a person. This must be my identity. To get into this university will mean I can do it. To get this job promotion means I can do it. Problem is, you don't always get the job promotion. You don't always get into the university you think you need to get into. What then? Well, it leads to great discouragement, doesn't it? There is something that we gain when we begin to understand what it means for us to find our righteousness in Christ that transforms us and it changes everything. Paul says, I consider all those things a loss because what I gain is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I've lost all things. God is giving us access to something that it doesn't make the present life insignificant or like it doesn't matter. It's just not supreme. The thing that's supreme is understanding God's love for us, His uh, grace for us. What is your greatest hope in? If it's in yourself, I hate to tell you this, but like all, everybody's days are numbered. Maybe your greatest hope is in humanity when you clearly don't read the news. Maybe your greatest hope is in a person. You know what happens when you, when you believe that it's, if a single person would just change then I can finally be happy? If they'll just do this, then I'll be okay? You're actually making them a God and you're going to crush them in the process because no one's good at being God except the one, except Jesus himself. The one who shows has a genuine interest for our welfare and our well-being, our Savior and our King and our Lord. You know, as you think about these three things, these three different people, Timothy, Epaphroditus and Paul. Paul starts humbly, and he says, look, I used to think this is what made life worth living. What I realize, it's a lie, and it's a loss. But I've actually found it. I've found the thing. It's this love that's accessible to us in Jesus. You remember what we read a couple weeks ago in Philippians 2 about who Jesus is? Listen to who Jesus is. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why does Jesus do that? Because he has a genuine interest in us understanding where we can find rightness, righteousness, where we can find winning. God is inviting us to see the truth, to access this primary narrative of His grace that is for us, and it will transform your life. Now, I read a story this week about a Presbyterian missionary named John Patton. Have you ever heard of John Patton? I actually hadn't heard of him. It's quite fascinating. If you're interested in it, you can email me, and I'll send you a couple of articles. But he's a Presbyterian missionary, and he was part of a wave of missionaries who had gone to an island in the South Pacific. And there had been two waves before him. And I wouldn't say that those missionaries were unsuccessful, but I will tell you that it's an island entirely inhabited by cannibals. And they did a lot of great things, but the island consumed them, if you know what I mean. This next wave of missionaries that went, of which John Patton was a part, through their work, they were able to build orphanages and hospitals and schools, and 85% of the island identified as being followers of Jesus. It's incredible. And he, a part of his mission there was also to translate the scriptures into their native language so that whether they're from Kazakhstan or, or China or um, you know, America, wherever you're from, you could actually read the language, the scriptures in your own language. And so he wanted to translate this into their native tongue. And he was struggling to find this word for faith. 
You know, faith, Hebrews tells us, is the assurance of things hoped for, right? The certainty of things unseen. It, it's believing in this Jesus who says he's the most humble of all servants, but also he's the king of creation. Faith is that expression of us saying we believe that. And he was struggling to find a way to translate that into their language. Until one day when he was in a field working and a person came up to him who was desperate and needed help and they said this to him in kind of an idiom, in a phrase, please, may I come and lean heavily upon you. Now we hear that and we think, you know, can I come and leave? No, no, no. The, the idea here is this, like, you're going to fall over. You're going to be crushed. You have to have something that is so firm and sure that if you don't lean upon it, you're going to hit the ground. You've got to have something to lean upon heavily with all your weight. You know, is there something in this world that's able to actually hold the weight of the sin of the world? The weight of the sin in your own life? The weight of the confusion you might experience. There is, there is this one where when we put our trust in Him, we gain this righteousness, and it's gain. It's total gain. Access into this enduring hope that can only be described as a word of life, and all of it comes to us by faith. Okay, let me, let me give you three ideas to think about, kind of setting the stage for all that. Here's, here's three quick things to consider. Let me read uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ, Paul says. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Okay, here's something to think about this week, these three ideas. The first is, Paul says, I want to know Christ. That's the starting point. Do you know Christ? Do you know how much God loves you? You know, my hope is at our church that through the relationships we have with each other, we get to do kind of what Timothy is doing and, and what Epaphroditus is doing and what Paul's doing and the Christians in Philippi are doing, expressing genuine interest for the welfare of one another because in doing that, we encounter Christ. By knowing who Christ is, we see clearly who we are. We are the beloved of God. We see clearly who people are. We see that actually people are in need of God's grace and, and, and the approach is to love them as God has loved us. It guides our hearts when we're confused and we don't have answers to things. There is one who loves us. Do we know Christ, the most humble one, the most marvelous one? Paul goes on and says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection. You know what resurrection means? Like it means to raise up, right? Resurrection is this idea that God is in the business of making dead things come to life. Whether it's your marriage or whether it's the hope of being reunited to people who have gone on before us, who have been taken, if it's the hope that maybe God will heal, He promises one day He will, it might not be in this life, but one day He will restore. Paul says, I want to know Christ, I want to know the power of the resurrection for all things. You know, all of our days are numbered, that's true, but God wants you to experience the power of the resurrection today. Like maybe today, you can actually just stop and put all unbelief aside, just, just for the next couple minutes while I finish the sermon. And believe this, you are deeply loved by the King of heaven and earth. That's the starting point. And he wants you to know the power of the resurrection, not just so you can be part of the club, because you desperately need it. But Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection. And then he says, I want to participate in his sufferings. And I kind of hear that and go, is that the right translation? Like, I... I don't really have a lot of interest in sufferings. 
you know, nobody wants to suffer. Here's the deal. Just give it time. You're going to suffer. You're going to experience suffering. Paul doesn't want us to be caught off guard by the reality of suffering in a broken world, but also not to be caught off guard by the reality of suffering that comes with those who follow Jesus. There are things we believe as Christians that sometimes the culture hates. And we don't respond with arms. We respond as Jesus did. We love. We express the fruit of the Spirit, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, forbearance. We work out what it means to follow our Savior even into the suffering. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying seek after suffering. He's saying when you suffer, know this, I'm with you. I suffered also. Paul's writing this letter from prison. Suffering in this life until Jesus comes back in some ways is inescapable. John 15, 20, Jesus says, What have I, what have I told you? Remember, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Or 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering is not evidence of your unfaithfulness necessarily. It's evidence that we live in a world that is very much in need of what? To know Christ and the power of the resurrection. And all of that leads us to the very last part here, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Here's, what, here's my prayer for you this week. Pray that God enables you to, to seek to know Christ, to know the power of the resurrection, even in the midst of suffering, that you might begin to see the fruit of the Spirit in resurrecting things. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you need to confess your sin to somebody. Or you need to offer forgiveness. It's okay to pursue forgiveness. Say, look, I love you, but I've been hurt. Please forgive. Will you, do you, you know, let's talk about this. Maybe it's to pray for our country, pray for what's going on, people who are suffering, pray for our world. God, would you allow our world, bless missionaries so that people can attain to the resurrection because there's a word of life there that we have righteousness in Christ as we put our faith in him. Your God loves you and invites you to walk with him, to seek after him in all things because there he has life for you. Let's pray as we approach the table. Jesus, our hearts are easily distracted. Um, we're easily distracted from believing and understanding that your love for us, that by trusting in you, accessing this righteousness that is ours by faith, Lord, that that's the number one narrative to pursue, that our identity in you is above all things. Would you help us to be so moved by your faithfulness to us that we might enter into following you and asking you to bring resurrection in our lives and in our community and among our people. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.